Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Facilitate Talks. I'm Michael Adenia uh, at Facilitate and the team and I have recognised that we have been making a huge mistake. As conference organisers, we were going to wait until our next event before we got the Advanced Therapies community together. Uh, and we thought, okay, so we may not be able to gather at hotel bars and conference rooms and so forth, but the conversations that we would have in those environments we're still kind of having those virtually and I've what I've gathered in speaking with um, friends and colleagues is that there's so much perspective that we can gain um, from uh, from these conversations and we and I thought well look what if we just hit record on them and gave everyone the opportunity to gather around that so here it goes and every week I'll be joined by experts and friends um, and we'll each be posing one big question to each other and this week I'm pleased to have three guests for you and that's Anthony Davis, Lindsay Clark, and Jenk Suman. Hello, guys. Hello, Michael. Hi. Nice to see you. Hello, Michael. Hello. <laughs> so let's just do a quick round the houses. Um, first of all, Lindsay Clark. So Lindsay heads up Biotechnics European Cell and Gene Therapy Team and oversees the region's strategic direction and specialist sales team for products and services that are utilised within the cell and gene space. So although Biotechnics are considered a pretty new player in the cell and gene space. It's actually been a pretty obvious transition for a company that has a long history as a life science tools and tech provider. As well as launching new products, and this is something that I've been given an insight, inside line on over the last few months, um, Biotechni are also like us, they believe in the power of partnerships and are uh, earlier this year rolled out a joint venture combining their raw materials with the technologies from a couple of very well-known suppliers, Wilson Wolf and Fresenius Cabby. So yeah, you'll probably no doubt be hearing more about that during this episode. You also have a background in immunology and your career kind of started in the technical, as a technical specialist in cell selection and process automation. And so you've been with Biotechni for a couple of years now, but I but previous to that, you were at Miltenyi uh, for a pretty good stint. How long was that for? Uh, nearly eight years. In the front line, hanging out in labs, sorting out processes. Um, a lot of fun, actually. And the interesting thing about you is that your name came up a couple of times when we were thinking about doing this show. And a couple of people in the team said, you've got to have Lindsay on this. You absolutely have to have Lindsay on this. And... I think you came up to the same conclusion as to why people might suggest that. Do you want to remind us why that was? I think I probably, didn't I say something like, it's probably because I say something before I think about it. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, you know what, that is a great trait to have for this format. So yeah. thanks for joining us, Lindsay. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And over to Jenk Suman. So Jenk and I go way back i think i first met jenk back in 2012 or 2013 in a washington dc basement uh, for uh, one of our facilitate events and jenk has again got a strong background in commercialization uh, and was previously at pct uh, now hitachi and most recently firmo fisher um, but his current role is with stemson therapeutics which 
Um, I remember correctly, Jenk, did that organization start with you and some friends? That's right. Essentially, as with all great adventures, it's a group of friends. Um, the inventor is a buddy of mine from Stanford that I've known for 20 years. And we snagged the top executive from uh, Illumina to head up as CEO. So it's a great group. And um, as far as meeting you, Michael, I remember it was in the middle of a snowstorm, a blizzard. That was something out of the movie Snowpiercer. I took a train from New York to D.C. and half the people had not showed up because of a snowstorm. But the ones that showed up were really intense. And I think it was a great meeting. So I definitely remember that one. I, I remember. It was, yeah, the, the year of the storm um, at Facilitate Leaders World, where I think half our delegation were unable to fly in. But that was a year to, re to remember or a year to forget. You know, you, you take your pick. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was a year to remember because, um, you know, we have setbacks all the time, but it just impressed me how many people in the industry are so bold on the cutting edge. And, you know, whatever, whatever it takes, snowstorms, uh, calamities, we're, we're, we show up to get the work done. So that was very impressive for me. Absolutely. And that is one of the things I love about this industry. Um, so finally, um, over to Anthony Davis, the CEO and founder of Dark Horse Consulting. And now, this is strange one, Anthony, because um, you normally cheer the opening of our conference and Advanced Therapies Week earlier this year. Um, and it's normally you doing the intros. And I don't think I've ever asked you really, yet, how would you like to be introduced? So how would you like to be introduced, Anthony? Gosh, I, I think um, we were, Lindsay and I were just chatting earlier that uh, I've had one of those careers where you know, in, in hindsight, everything can seem to be very well planned and orchestrated. I, I, my PhD in the 80s was on scale up of viral vector production uh, when that was an extremely unfashionable area of research. And uh, for three years, I was actually a, a UK government virologist um, at a time when that wasn't even a remotely interesting profession to confess to. Nowadays, it's a, it's a lot more interesting, I, I'm sure. But I think uh, I'm one of those people, and I, I know that Yank and Lindsay and you know many, um, who just couldn't get out, could not escape this cell and gene therapy field. Uh, in and out of it during PhD, postdoc, first job, tried to get away, never achieved escape velocity. And then suddenly, half a dozen years ago, um, this field uh, turned into a field, from a field where kind of nothing worked in the end in the clinic, uh, to the field where suddenly everything seems to be working. Uh, so I think uh, I, I, I like to be introduced as one of those people whose career is a testament to the phrase that uh, it's better to be lucky than good. Wow, and you have, you're, you're one person that's definitely hustled as well um, to, to get there uh, and created your own luck too. Um, so brilliant guys. Well, thank you again for all of you joining us. And thank you to everyone that's listening and really, really important feedback, feedback, feedback. I would love to get as much input from everyone that's listening on how we can make the show better, um, questions that we can uh, that we can ask the participants and what you guys want to get out of it so please do hit me up um, on uh, LinkedIn or you can drop me an email and I'll put the details of that um, in the in the show notes at the bottom so um, without further ado let's jump right into it so we each guest has prepared one big question for for each of us to tackle 
And we're gonna go first with Lindsay. What's your big question? Yeah, so I think it's safe to say that for everyone um, around the world almost, this has been a, a pivotal change in the way that you live your life. Um, how, you know, when I look, when I reflect on the changes that my team have put together in, uh, you know, relatively short space of time, it's, it's fascinating to, to discuss. So I'd like to ask, you know, what are the changes that you've implemented during this uh, very unusual period? And, you know, how many of them can you see taking forwards into what we see as a sort of a new normal heading back towards a, a more normal um, state whenever that may be? Yeah, that, that's a super question. Yes, we run a highly dispersed team. Uh, we have clients from Israel through Europe, North America, APAC down to Singapore. Uh, and we've even done work in Australia. Um, so in a sense, we are well acclimated and, and prepared. I, you know, I am a firm believer like you in face-to-face -face and collaborative uh, environments uh, in, in real life, as it were. But a lot of the conversations um, from Dark Horse and a lot of the decisions are, are, are made in, in this room. They always have been made in, in this room, which is, which is my home office. Um, we temper that, however, with, with meeting frequently. I was talking to a, one of our newly hired principals. Actually, the first face-to-face uh, -face interaction he had with the Dark Horse team was in, in Miami. Uh, in January, uh, Michael, I think I, I, I smuggled him in and under a day pass. I, I bribed you to, to give me uh, just so he could put it, show his face. Oh, uh, yes, and yes, I remember. I, I was talking to, to Scott about this uh, the other day and saying you know, I was so regretful he had not had the standard dark horse uh, introduction because by now, by May, uh, he would have seen me at least three or four times in three or four different airports or client facilities, um, which is, you know, as you know, a pretty low quality lifestyle in reality, uh, but he would have seen me and we would have broken bread together and uh, looked into each other's eyes. Uh, now he's also a seasoned business traveler, so he was, his message was, you know, it, it's for now it's fine. And I think there has been a little bit of relief um, from everyone. I clock on average 100 travel days a year. Uh, and this year, obviously, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, hate to be away from home. Uh, but I, 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 honest to God, I'm really missing it. And I think everybody is in a, in a sense as well. So what are we going to do? And what new skills are we going to learn? Because although I, I'm a firm believer in the long view, and I believe the long perspective will be much more similar to how life was before uh, than it will be different. Uh, but in the meantime, we do have to learn more skills and uh, find different ways of doing things, especially with, with organizations like a Facilitate, who've always added such value by their uh, New York, their big gatherings. Lindsay, so yeah, you, you guys at Biotechni, you were telling me about some of the things that um, as a global organization, you've been connecting uh, virtually uh, over this period as well. Do you think that that's something that, uh, yeah, could you expand on that a little bit more? And is that something that you think will carry on? 
Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'm based in Europe. Uh, the parent organization is in the US already. So I spend a lot of my late afternoons on conference calls to the US regardless. Um, you know, when you think what my, a, a bit like following on from what Anthony said, you know, we are people who live out of suitcases. Um, you know, I'm on the conference circuit frequently. Uh, that's how we know each other. Um, and, you know, my team, again, uh, cover large geographic areas and travel a lot. Suddenly they're locked down and they're having to find new ways of working. And so, yeah, we, we immediately had a kind of, what a, we've instigated things like we have a daily huddle just so that we can feel connected. Um, for the wider organization, uh, very early on, um, you know, we have probably 80 people out in the field who are used to working, um, you know, in, in the field, remotely in their home office. But then we had all the office team who were suddenly isolated when, you know, you're used to bumping people. You know, I, I have a really nice mix where I go into our, our offices, but I also work from home. And, you know, I always find bumping into people in the corridors. And that, that was a, a very strange transition where suddenly there were people that you'd, you'd pass the time of day with, you'd have a useful interaction, but actually, you know, getting not feeling that you need to book in a meeting to have a chat with someone, but you could just message them and say, actually, we've got five minutes now. Getting, getting into that way of working was, was quite strange, but something that, you know, definitely taking forwards. Um, engaging with, with our clients, um, you, you know, again, we've got a lot of people, uh, we do a lot of work with process development teams and manufacturing teams. You know, quite a few people are at home. How do we you know, engage with the wider community where, you know, we'd be doing it at conferences, for example, we'd see people, we'd have a few drinks at the bar probably, and we'd have a good chat and missing that. And actually, you know, having to come to terms with actually, it's just really nice to pick up a phone and have a chat with somebody that you've worked with, just check in and see how they're doing. Um, we very on realised that, you know, we needed to get, I, I sort of feel having worked on this kind of supplier side for, you know, pretty much all my career in cell and gene therapy that, you know, we're in a privileged position, a bit like you guys that facilitate, you know, it's, I almost feel like it's, it's our job to connect people. Um, there's so many challenges within our industry. And if I can bring people together that, you know, are in my little black of contacts that can make a difference to some of these challenges, you know, that's what I, really enjoy doing and, and seeing these kind of connections made. So we wanted to see if we could do that in a virtual format. And um, I can now talk about it with relief. But last week, we put on our first virtual symposia. I had no idea how it was going to work. We actually went out and looked at a completely different industry um, and, and got advice on well, how do you engage people in online content? Um, I don't know about you guys, but um, I think there's something called webinar fatigue. I'm very good at putting on a webinar um, on one screen and then finding something else to do on another screen. And so we wanted to create a way to bring, almost bring the speakers into your home. So actually insisting that our speakers had their video on. So they were in, you know, you were face to face with them. Having a host of the, of the symposia so that it would go back to Kamar and my team so that he was connecting everybody. So you felt like 
um, you felt that you were part of this meeting. And, uh, you know, I'm very good at, you know, leaving them to get on with things. We had technical issues. I think that was, was part of the charm. But actually, I, I managed to stay tuned in for nearly two hours. And most of our audience did too, which really surprised me. Because, you know, if you run a webinar, you lose half the audience fairly quickly. Yeah, that's a common stat in a common uh, metric with webinars is what is the drop off rate um, throughout. So yeah. keeping people engaged. Keeping yeah, people engaged is a challenge. That, yeah, for an extended period of time when they're already at home. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Sorry, guys, I've got a, uh, a, a, a build <laughs> doing some slabs in our, in our back garden at the moment. Um, but yeah, keeping people engaged over that sort of period is really tough so to be honest with you Lindsay I reckon my organization might learn some things from <laughs> you in but organizing events from what you've done last week so well done for pulling that off it's no secret it was it was going and we actually I watched um, I, I watched a, a digital marketing agency webinar on how do you keep people engaged and pivoted exactly what we were going to do yeah we didn't you know, I was going to go with normal webinar. Oh, we've got some speakers. Let's do 20 minutes and Q&As. And actually, you, you get bored quite quickly. Of that. Mm. This so, is me think, not thinking. Words are coming out. Not thinking. Yeah. But it's unnatural. I've got a... I want to I wanna use your question and ask Jenk a question, actually. Because Jenk, working for a therapeutic company, um, who, you know, I suppose in this environment could potentially be a... a customer of a biotechny um, or an organization like that like how and Jake I know your passion is around moving from early to late stage and uh, and developing uh, manufacturing strategies how have you been able to do your work at the moment yeah so that's been a major challenge and I, I really hear um, the comments from Anthony and Lindsay as well on this so when I joined this company um, last September, my uh, MO was essentially uh, as a bi-coastal executive, right? So I still live in New York City area. This company's in San Diego. I figured, okay, I now have friends that live in California, commute to Wall Street and back. I'll just essentially do the reverse commute, right? I'll, I'll fly out on Monday morning. I'll spend a week in San Diego, fly back for the weekend to spend time with family. And you know, maybe I'll, I'll alternate one week there and one week at home. And it actually worked really well for half a year and we advanced on our, our goals and aims um and now of course with the pandemic all that travel has been the biggest challenge right the lack thereof so um i haven't been able to of course travel to san diego so i'm very eager to see in a safe way how we can open up uh travel uh, and kind of get get back some of that routine uh, it's very difficult to collaborate and share information and build new strategies without being there in person. Uh, we've been, you know, as with all executives, we've been working on that to get better. And we've managed to keep our team together at Stems and Therapeutics, uh, working productively, productively and actively. So that's been a, a big um, uh, focus for us that already bore, bore fruit in, in April. And our, our CEO, um, Jeff Hamilton, has really put together a great plan. And we managed to close a seed round in March right before the kind of castle gates closed. Um, I was just actually in Tokyo uh, giving presentations, flew back kind of right before uh, the travel stopped in the middle of March. Uh, and we were able to actually move off our, um, our cradle, as, you, uh, as it were, where we were founded um, at the uh, Sanford Burnham Prebis Institute. 
to our first uh, uh, facilities with wet lab uh, at, at the General Atomics campus, a nice hill overlooking La Jolla, which as a government contractor site with, uh, with a long history of working with the US government, it remains functional with a working cafeteria and you know, meticulously manic manufactured, uh, manicured gardens, everything well tended. Of course, none of which I get to experience now being a remote executive stuck on the East Coast. So, um, I mean, there, there's a bright side. Um, I'll join Anthony to reiterate that at Stemson Therapies, we're actively hiring uh, and expanding our team during the economic downturn. And there's a lot of talent out there uh, and we want to work with the best people. So I think that's, that's been a good focus for us to kind of batten down the hatches and keep moving forward despite the storm. Um, and we've done the usual implementing shifts, uh, working on testing and personal protective equipment and distancing. And we want to maximize employee safety in a lab. And basically gone, you know, we have, we have a great team. So it's that old adage, you know, hire the best people and get out of their way. So we've actually gone to our team to say, what makes you feel safer working in a lab and as an executive group, how can we help achieve that environment so that you feel safe balancing work and, and life and everyone has kids at home. So, um, and we're doing our experiments in mice. Uh, we're moving to pigs this year, but if we think about mice in, in our animals facilities, I know as, as a former um, immunologist and virologist, we've all done plenty of time injecting mice. You know, essentially we've been socially distancing our mice in cages all along. And now we can really commiserate with these mice since we're, we've been essentially self-caged essentially now for weeks. <laughs> so I really sympathize with the mice more. And, but on the bright side, we can go into these animal facilities and keep doing experiments. You know, essentially, you know, an individual scientist can prepare their materials, go into uh, the mouse facility and you know, make our injections and get the data. And, and I'm big focus on data as well, right? So just making sure that we're making the best use of our data because, you know, as scientists, we tend to push ahead to get to the hot experiments and then data piles up on the side, right? I don't know any scientist that has basically kind of completed all their homework as far as data analysis. And now we're going back and saying, okay, let's be really diligent. Have we gotten the most out of our data? Is there anything on the shelf that we can go back and reanalyze and add value? So I think from those perspectives, we've, um, we've aimed to be as productive as we can given the circumstances. That's really interesting. So there's like a deeper sort of interrogation uh, of, of your data um, that is what re relatively new because of the pandemic, then, eh? Yeah, and yeah. you know, Michael, it's it's even uh, things like AI and machine learning. We've these things have been attractive in the past mm. for us to evaluate, but now we're saying, okay, like, how do we get the most out of the existing data? Maybe we should turn to these new methodologies and algorithms to kind of squeeze more value out of our existing data and take another look. Nice. Um, okay. So I'm going to shift now over to second big question. Jenk, over to you. What, what big question would you like to ask us? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, when I, when you um, pose this to us, uh, and uh, for me, the focus has been, okay, well, there's a pandemic and we have to react in a reasonable, rational manner. Um, there's many models on how to approach this. One thing that we've seen um, in the US now, and I think I can just speak uh, to the US, but this is probably an issue globally, is that we have a lot of, um, you know, it, it, and this, some of this data came from facilitate as well, that clinical trial uh, is likely uh, the area that's highly, the most highly impacted because of the uh, pandemic. So I think the latest uh, figures were that there's globally over a thousand clinical trials now that have been put on hold 
and hopefully these will kind of restart at some point. But as we all know, these are not trivial to restart and patient recruitment is a challenge even when there's not a pandemic. Um, hospitals are in trouble in the U.S. Uh, due to a precipitous drop in revenues. And we realized uh, part of what makes uh, medical care so expensive in the U.S. is elective surgeries. And you know this is the uh, purvey of a population that's um, actively trying to stay healthy, trying to stay on top of the information, to be well-informed, and uh, to engage the hospitals in a productive way. But that's all down now because everyone's uh, you know, basically uh, holed up uh, at home and, and avoiding hospitals and basically you know, preserving bandwidth for uh, COVID-19 related um, health cases. So what do we do with everything else that's on hold? I mean, that, that, that was my big question. I mean, there's uh, oncology studies, cardiovascular studies, you know, some, some actually turn back to the um, pandemic because some of these, you know, obesity, cardiovascular are actually risk factors for developing COVID-19 symptoms. And should we really, you know, how, how do we prioritize in the time of a pandemic? I guess that would be the question. And I'd be really interested to hear uh, from my colleagues what, what they feel about this. That's really interesting. Who, who wants to take a stab at this? Oh, I'm happy to, Michael. I, I think it's a, it's a you know, terrific question, Jane. Um, there was a fascinating article in the New York Times last week from a pulmonologist working in a Manhattan emergency room who was distressed to see his beds only 39% occupied. Um, obviously, they had been saturated with COVID-19 patients for many weeks, uh, but normal occupancy um, is approximately twice what he was seeing last week as a an emergency pulmonologist. And his question was, where are these people? Um, where they should have been was in his hospital. They were not because you know, basically, as, as Jenk said, to put it more succinctly, we're all terrified of hospitals right now. Um, I'm, I've been terrified of hospitals in my life, but that's another story. Well, especially terrified of hospitals right now. Um, and these patients are deteriorating, um, dying, and not receiving the care which uh, countries like the United Kingdom and the United States have invested so much in being able to provide. My, my wife's uh, an oncologist at a large urban med center, and a lot of her patients are immunocompromised. She is persuading as many of them as possible to delay starting treatment programs because the last place she wants them to come in is her hospital. But on the other hand, in a, in a normal world, those treatment programs would and should have started uh, weeks ago. And uh, I think what Jenk is saying is we're kicking a lot of cans down the road here. Mm. And they will still be on the road um, when, when we get there. It's really interesting because we we did a survey um, via Facilitate Exchange a couple of weeks ago in assessing the impact of the the, of the pandemic on the advanced therapies industry, and we identified we asked respondents, you know, which are the areas that are going to be of most impact, and you know, like you've identified, Jake, 
clinical trials is the number one area that are going to have the um, that can have the the biggest impact. And second to that was hospital administration of therapies, things like supply chain and manufacturing and, and affordability. You know, way you know, way further down the list. And it feels like this is a leading indicator to other to what might be the lagging indicators of not having that data that we need um you know organizations like biotechni you're probably going to start seeing a significant reduction potentially in in orders um and yeah i'm just you know this is really quite interesting i'd love to you know get your take on this as well i mean it's very deep very deep question i mean it's impacting on every aspect of our lives um you know, we have seen, and I think it's safe to say, we, you know, we have seen, we had an expected a drop off, um, you know, from a supply perspective in, in sales, but it's been a real mixed bag, actually. There's very, you, you see very, um, you see some areas, you know, um, academic research institutions, all that kind of thing. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of at that early chain, early part of the, the, the chain, really. Um, you know, we have a lot of the commercial entities that we work with, you know, the conversations are not about the trials being halted. It's well, we're keeping going while we can mm. up that supply chain. It's about, you know, I spend a, you know, a lot of time, what are we doing as an organization to make sure that we are able to supply the manufacturing and, and everything going forwards. And, you know, it's been fascinating from, from, uh, from a business perspective to see how we have pivoted our teams internally to make sure that as far as we're concerned for our customers, it's business as normal. If you're working with us, we will supply you and we will provide you because, you know, if you look at biotechnology as a, as a bigger picture company, you know, our core capabilities are in making antibodies, proteins, and assays combining the two. Well, well guess what the COVID serological test uses? Um, you know, you can imagine we've been making an awful lot of, we've pivoted a lot of our resources into making um, the COVID peptides and antibodies to that. And, and that's all, you know, that, that's a complete change in, in, in direction, but one that, that is needed. And it's our customers, you know, it's, it's actually, I'm very proud to be part of an organization where we know it's the, the, the researchers who are using our products who are going to solve this solution. And when, so actually for us, we're seeing, um, you know, we see shifts in, in people's patterns of purchasing, but again, you just pivot to respond to that. Mm. It doesn't really solve the, 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 it's not really a reflection of what we see in the hospitals long-term that is going to be, you know, it's, it's going to impact on all of us, but we have to, as a, I guess, as a, community as um you know it's going to be we're going to have to prioritize it comes back yeah. to the question what is the priority yeah and i suppose maybe that's all it is is a case of look we're in a pandemic like mood music is mm. let's deal with that and and yeah. um, does everything else have to take a back seat for a period of several months potentially is that is that what you're feeling jank yeah i mean i think for us um 
as, as Lindsay has put it, uh, business goes on and mm. um, the reliability of suppliers should always be a primary uh, characteristic. But in, in these times of potential disruptions, I think reliability and quality goes to the very top. Uh, so we want to be working with suppliers that have worked this out and are able to keep things going and provide supplies uh, that uh, make, make sure that the research is ongoing, right? So that's, that's become even more important for us. Yeah. And it just to sort of like, you know, hark back to the importance of the research, because if you've got researchers who are going to solve the problem of COVID, ultimately, they can't get what they need. And, you know, I mean, I obviously have a, I have a big thing about supply chain continuity. Um, it's one of the most important things in our industry. But actually, that same level of importance needs to be put. So we prioritize COVID shipments. Mm. If you know that someone's working on COVID, that gets flagged up in the ordering system. So we know we've got to get that out. Priority, you know, it, it's changing the way, you know, even simple things that we do to meet the needs of what's going into to solving this problem. Mm. And Anthony, Dark Horse have had to have pivoted and, and supporting um, COVID in, in some capacity as well. Is that right? We have, um, actually, we, we have a, a standing corporate goal of spending uh, a fixed percentage of our revenue every year on philanthropic activity. And um, obviously this year we, we put all of that, uh, all of that budget into supporting some pro bono um, COVID-19 work. Uh, we're working with an international team uh, on analytical method development for uh, better, more robust tests. Wow. Uh, leveraging our existing expertise in viral vector testing, uh, which, we, which we have a lot of. Um, and we've also got a couple of other projects which will uh, become public um, in, in due course. And I think this has served multiple purposes. Sure, we check uh, the box on our, on our philanthropic goal, uh, but also uh, everybody wants to do something to help. Um, so it's been genuinely motivating for all of our team, myself included, uh, that if you think you can just do something to, to help uh, speed the end of this uh, this thing then then you do and uh, obviously we feel that uh, because we're lucky enough to have uh, good skills and relevant skills uh, we are actually helping uh, materially in some way also well that's brilliant so I, I didn't know that that's something that you you allocated for every year and you know it's it's brilliant that you're able to pivot and, and support both um, pro bono in that sort of way so quickly that's that's fantastic well, you know, it's one of those things where we, we, we talk about this a lot uh, when we allocate that budget. We can go and pick up litter off the beach and, and, and that's good. Uh, but we, we always try to find uh, a philanthropic donation which is in some way relevant to our day-to-day -day, uh, and the, the issues that we care about uh, in, our, in our work life as well. Brilliant. So last question over to you, Anthony. What's your big question for us? The big question... I want people like us to address, strangely, it has nothing to do with this pandemic. I want us to think about how the world is going to address the next pandemic. Because there will be another pandemic as night follows day. And those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. In a sense, we're in a privileged position right now because history is unfolding every day in front of our eyes and uh, you know, shame on us if we if we do not 
take advantage of that for the, for the betterment of, our, of future generations. Cup half full, I think one of the positives that will come out of this experience is a much greater appreciation of the value of extremely high quality, nimble healthcare research and development. And I, I, we, we as a group have always believed in this, but I think now the world really knows uh, that if you can't test for pathogens, if you can't model their spread, if you can't uh, rapidly strategize mitigations and treatments, uh, then, then you should be able to. Uh, I think it's interesting that in the month of April, the biotech-specific venture capital raised was an all-time high. The previous record was in August 2018, and in April 2020, around about five billion US dollars were raised in new funds. And this was blue chip money from well-known names in the venture industry, uh, Venbio, Third Rock, et cetera, et cetera. And what's interesting to me about that is that while a lot of the heavy lifting for these fundraisers were definitely done, uh, was definitely done prior to the pandemic, the funds closed in April, which was more than long enough after the pandemic mm -hmm. set in, for people to change their minds and get cold feet. But they didn't, or at least five billion worth didn't. We'll never know if some did. But even if that's the case, this was uh, just by a little bit, a record raise. That money is there. Um, last time I checked the interest rate on my savings account, and that's not looking so good. So these investors will want to deploy this capital uh, in biotech and healthcare over the next year or two. I think that's a tremendous sign and I hope that we will use a lot of that money uh, directly and indirectly uh, to better address the next pandemic. Cell and gene therapy will have a role in fixing this one, not a frontline primary role. The next pandemic, who knows? We don't know. And that's the point. Wow. That's, a, I think that's a huge question. Do you think then, Anthony, that there's as much responsibility on biotech and pharma in dealing with the next pandemic as much as governments and society and so forth or is your question specifically relating to how are how is the cell and gene therapy community going to deal with the next going to prepare for the next pandemic yeah that's that's a good point, Michael. I mean, there, there are layers, okay? We, we mm. sit in the cell and gene um, shell of the onion. Uh, outside of us is the biotech share of the onion. Outside of that is the global investment community. And probably outside of that is the, is the federal and, and governmental shell. Um, they all need to work better, obviously. Um, yeah, I think it's ironic that in, 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 at a time in history when the world is theoretically better able to communicate than ever before, uh, communication and coordination has probably been the, the, the worst and literally most embarrassing part of many countries' uh, response to this situation. So I think, um, yes, uh, I'm, I 
remain focused. Dark Horse has always been cell and gene only. That's the way it's going to stay. Uh, but we operate within wider ecosystems, wider and wider and wider ecosystems. And I think that's, uh, we have to continue to uh, you know, focus on the day-to-day, -day, uh, but remain aware of the strategic issues. I suppose this is a good question for, um, for Lindsay and Jenk to, to both take a stab at, seeing as one, Lindsay obviously based in Europe, but for a, glo a large global organization and Jenk um, with um, your, your um, lean biotech as well. I'd love to get the perspectives of, of organizations of, of your size and well, how, how do we better prepare for, for the next pandemic? So um, when that question came up, I furiously scribbled some notes down. And do you know what I wrote in capital letters? Communication. I just, you know, when we've looked at, you know, everything from government responses, you know, at the end of the day, we're all people. And we're all people being asked to do things completely different to what normal is for us. And I, I think I've learned over the years the best way to get someone to do something that they might not be keen around is communication communicating it effectively and I, I think that is it's something that I think we'll reflect on so uh, once we get through this how was it communicated where were the different strategies all of this it underpins um, you know it, it underpins everything we do uh, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the financing side of things. Um, do you think the impact of lockdown is that people are more available, so therefore they could have those more more difficult conversations around, actually, should we pull out and be able to discuss it more? I certainly find myself more available for far too many Zoom calls. But it's getting that engagement with people, building those relationships. Actually, sometimes it's a bit easier. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a mixed bag, Lindsay. I think, uh, yeah, we, we are able to talk and think more. And, you know, one of the flip sides of 100 uh, travel days a year is a hell of a lot of wasted time. Yeah. And not to mention the commute into the office and back from the office and to the airport and so on and so forth. So that's a plus. I think that, uh, you know, 9-11 caused many people to predict not just the end of business travel, but the end of travel as we knew it. And I think two years later, uh, business travel hit all time record levels. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're compulsive as a species, we're compulsive face-to-face -face communicators and we do it when, however, and whenever we can, I don't think that's going to change. And as I said, I think in a few years time, the world will be a lot more like it was than the way it is. Um, but I, but I certainly agree with you that, uh, yeah, that in, in distress, there is always opportunity. Yeah. And that communication point after, um, the UK government's announcement yesterday, which, um, yeah, absolutely threw up more questions and doubt than it answered. What would you agree, Jenk? Has, has, has communication been a key, key word with, with your organization? Yeah, and um, I really want to thank Anthony for asking this question. He's, he's sort of, I see him as the philosopher 
resident <laughs> philosopher of the silent gene therapy community. So yeah. I, I, this is a um, wonderful direction that he's pointing us into. And I, I have to give an example of my kids. I have an eight and a 10 year old and um, you know, they're going to be the next uh, generation of leaders, hopefully as parents, we'd, we'd hope. Right. So I said, you know, look, we're, this is how we're dealing with this pandemic. Last time this happened was, you know, 1918 was Spanish flu and 50 million people died. And my daughter asked, you know, if I had to live through those times, would it have been better to live through the Spanish flu or this you know, SARS-2, COVID-19? And how have we gotten better as a human society globally in 100 years? And I was actually hard pressed to find, you know, the obvious, you know, we have technology and you know, all this kind of other modern tools at our disposal. But, you know, in some ways, we've actually taken some steps back. And um, you know, I think you pointed out all levels of government and leadership needs, needs to work better because we know the viruses don't respect borders and we need to value science over hype and you know, favor global collaboration over finger pointing or the usual media spins or this kind of um, uh, social media amplification chambers. So I think it's causing people to take a hard look at this, even when they're at home for the most time and all they have to go to is a social media for a lot of, uh, you know, for a lot of the cases. So, I'm hoping we're valuing seriousness and focus and um, real leadership better in, in times of crisis. And one thing I pointed out to my kids is that, look, you know, we're a global community and everyone's very self-critical of their own family. So you, know, you mentioned UK, you know, people in the US are critical, people in France are critical of their uh, leadership. I said, we, there's solutions globally. Don't just look at your own community or your own country, but look throughout the whole uh, you know, human uh, populations and how they deal with this. We've seen good examples from just the name one New Zealand, right? The leadership there and encouraging people to look beyond their communities and their own societies uh, and just to think more as a species, let's put it that mm. way. I think from yeah. something that I sort of have come across fairly recently is I have quite a few friends that aren't scientists and suddenly they're in science's corner and they, mm. they are educating themselves on things that, you know, a deep, deep and dark virology and then asking my opinion on it from an immunology perspective. And I'm going, where did you learn these words? You know, it's fascinating how suddenly science and medicine is cool. I like that. Mm. That, that is actually a, a massive positive um, to, to learn from this actually, is that it, to, to an extent, you know, making science accessible to a lot more people, um, will have its benefits in terms of um, a, a greater understanding and uh, and a greater buy-in um, later down the line as well i imagine thank you everyone for taking part in this conversation and you know, i think that we've all shared some really really interesting points that um, i'm i'm excited to get this out and get this turned around and uh, to get feedback from from the wider community so um, I want to thank each of you and um, can each of you, in terms of how people, if, one, if someone wanted to get in touch with you um, on a one-to-one -one, uh, via email or social, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Lindsay, have you got a, a way that you, you'd like people to, to reach out to you? Um, LinkedIn's usually the best way to get hold of me. My inbox is a piece of work, so <laughs> I actually get through. I second Lindsay on this. LinkedIn for me as well, please. Perfect. And you, Anthony? LinkedIn is good. Um, also, our, um, our company website has a contact box and we monitor that uh, very closely. Perfect. Okay. Well, I will make sure we include everyone's LinkedIn um, contact yeah. details um, when we share this episode as well. And um, well, guys, 
thank you so much for, for sharing your time with us today. And um, we'll speak again soon. Enjoy the rest of your Sounds week. Sounds good, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Thanks, guys. Bye, everyone. Stay Bye. safe. Well, that's the end of the first episode. I really hope you found it interesting and insightful at a time when we can't all meet in person. And if you did, please do share it with someone else that you think might also find it of value. But before we wrap up, I want to let you know about a excellent webinar that we've got coming up at Facilitate Exchange, and it's titled Reproducibility, Reliability, Robustness, Establishing Cornerstones for Cell Standardization of Cell Manufacturing. The webinar will deep dive into the manufacturing parameters that have a significant effect on product performance. We've got three excellent speakers for you. Francesco Darzi, who is the head of regenerative medicine at King's College London. Scott Jones, who is the VP of scientific affairs at Biobridge Global. And Stephen Thompson, the VP of sales and product management at Sexton Biotechnologies. And we have to give a lot of credit to Steve Thompson and the team at Sexton for pulling together such an excellent panel um, for you. It's really going to give viewers some tangible strategies to explore for their own variability mitigation strategies. So um, the webinar is taking place on the 27th of May and has a limited number of spaces. So sign up early at facilitate.co.uk forward slash exchange and hit the webinars tab right at the top of the page. Well, that's it for now, and we'll see you all soon.